What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm Ro. And I am Savannah. And today we have Dr. Suzanne Veerling, clinical psychologist who specializes in working with national and international victims of sex trafficking, specifically trafficked Black women and girls. And she'll do a lot of focus in this episode about the foster care to sex trafficking system. She also is involved in a lot of higher education, community organizing, and was a former VP of Academic Affairs at a university system. Welcome, Dr. Suzanne Veerling. Hello, everyone. How are you? Savannah Rowe, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. You know, we were really, really excited to have you on. Um, We've both been following your Twitter page for quite some time now. And we see just the awesome takes that you have on a range of topics that we are really excited to just uh, pick your brain about within this episode. But the first, I guess, question is, you just want to tell our listeners a bit more about yourself, career highlights, where you're from, your background, professional background. And yeah, just tell us a bit about yourself. Well, you know, I'm of Caribbean background from uh, Jamaica, but I'm, you know, American citizen. So I'm here in the United States. You're an island gal. Yeah, island gal (laughs) from the islands. (laughs) Island gal. (laughs) It's a Cardi song. And every once in a while, a a stronger accent comes out. I think it depends on the emotion behind anything that I'm saying. It just depends. But here in the United States, I've grown up on the East Coast and on the West Coast. And I've been here forever. My undergraduate was in a very science heavy, even though I was not a biology major, my university system is just drenched in biotech, biopharma, life science, science funding. And so you hear me talk about that sometimes because it's pretty significant when it comes to women as a sex class. You know, my doctoral work, I have my doctorate and I've done a little bit of everything. I've done community psychology, which means everything you learn in school, you get into the community and you're like, this is not in the book. (laughs) So you end up getting like a second education when it comes to really seeing the intersex of sex, race, and class in, you know, communities of color, black communities. And I've been in management, executive leadership, and I had an opportunity, great opportunity to work with leadership, governors, and head of NGOs from Eastern European, Asian, and African nations around sex trafficking and what to do with girls that are recovered and brought back to their nation of origin. And I've done some community organizing, and it's not an easy thing to do. I think I would love to hear about all of that. So just starting with the first point, working with girls who've been recovered and sex trafficking stings, what's been your experience with that? Well, you know, in the United States, boys, it's tough to help. I'm going to just uh, talk about African-American girls. I'm going to talk about girls in general, our sex class in general. But, you know, it's not an easy thing to do because the African-American girls have some very culturally specific indoctrination in protecting pimps and protecting traffickers. And the pimps and traffickers have developed a very sophisticated system where they basically transfer the actions that can get you a prison sentence onto the girl and then indoctrinate girls and women into the no snitch, no snitch culture, climate. You know, you can't tear a man down. Don't tear a black man down type of a thing. You can't put us, you know how the system is, you know how the white man is, you know how white supremacy is. So girls get indoctrinated into that culture of no snitching, and then they get the time, 20, 30 years in prison and things like that. If you want to see a good, like, a documentary on that, it's called For My Man, and it's wild. You literally see black women being sent down, like, you know, for life imprisonment because they're refusing to snitch. But meanwhile, the guy who's also arrested for the same crime, he's singing to the feds like a bird, blaming it all on the black woman. And he might get maybe 10 years while she's sent down for life. It's, it's wild. Oh, they even have it so they cannot get caught. It's the girl or the woman that's setting up the appointment, calling the motel, driving an underage girl across state lines. And they don't even get named. They don't even get brought in for questioning. 
So they've learned how to hand over some of those job duties. They hand it over knowing, oh, that's five years. Oh, that's 10 years. Oh, that thing right there that I'm having her do can catch me 20 years. So I'm going to have her do it, you know, that kind of a thing. But I have to see for my man. I want to see it because that'll be a good training tool, you know, for people. Yeah. So have you worked with women and girls who have been trafficked individually or is it more like on a clinical research level? Oh, no, individually. I managed a foster care agency. I was a director of a foster care agency. And a lot of the girls, you know, and it's all poor girls and for different ways, different routes, poor white girls, poor Native American girls, poor black girls, you know, poor Mexican girls. And, you know, they have different experiences. You have some girls going to be tied to the cartel. You're going to have some girls that have been tied to these, you know, biker gangs that run drugs. Then you have the Native American girls. They have, you know, some of the Native American tribes, the girls and guys, you know, get some money, kind of like a reparations kind of a thing, get some money when they turn 18 to be able to go to school, have a little start in life, things like that. And everybody knows Native American girls is going to have that money coming. So that gets woven into how they're trafficked sometimes. And then African-American girls are just groomed in a very gaslighting type of a way, you know, hey, you know, people call you ugly, but I see your beauty, you know, that type of a thing. So they play up with how we're spoken about in the larger context of our community and the larger society. Hey, I'll take care of you. You know, I got your back. I think you're pretty. And groom girls that way. And unfortunately, I think in the United States, 40% of the traffic victims, that's recognized. I do think that European American girls are hidden easier. So I do think the numbers are a little bit different, but African American girls are 40% of the trafficked population. And the pimps look at black girls as volume. So I need 10 of them to be able with a certain minimum requirement of money to be made. And then that's what comes into the sneaker pimps and the traffickers and they deal and share and split up the money, however it is that they do that. I've often said on my timeline about the choice sex work or the people who talk about sex work being empowering is that the average sex worker looks like a Centoya Brown character. If you remember Centoya Brown, she was very famously, her case was taken up by Kim Kardashian and got international attention. That's a very typical case about women who are actually in the sex trade or who would even say at one point that they were in it by choice. Whereas like they were groomed from the foster care system from the time they were children. And then they, they don't know any other, anything else, you know? Exactly. They don't know anything else and they're groomed and psychologically manipulated to believe it was their choice. You see? So it's like an, a lengthy extended Stockholm syndrome. It's a lengthy, conversion of how you think and view reality. Can I just almost park the bus a bit there, um, Suzanne? Can you go into a bit more detail about the grooming process and how it happens? Because I feel like grooming, it can be assumed that it is a very overt process and it's very obvious and that it's like some, you know, creepy old man, you know, like in Hot Girls Wanted, telling these girls, yeah, come and do porn, yeah, come and do sex. Whereas in a lot of cases, I'd imagine it can be, I mean, it can happen that way, but it also can be a lot more insidious as well. That's very difficult to prove in court, you know, if there was not a lot of violence that can pull a young girl in, you know, people don't have the empathy and that's where the, oh, she chose it, she chose it comes in. But remember, we have a lot of missing black girls, right? A lot of missing women. Think. In the United States, we have almost 100,000 black women missing. And I'm sure you can, you know, communicate the data from the UK also. So I do believe that there's a great amount of violence and a combination of violence and manipulation, psychological grooming and things like that, that occur at the same time. Because eventually a pimp or a trafficker does really hurt a girl who might say, well, I don't want to do that, even though she might have been gently, not gently, but eased in, in a nonviolent way. It's really a mixture of both. But girls, unfortunately, you know, we attach, we will release 
the attachment hormone for the raggediest person on the planet. And men don't necessarily release. No, it's true. We release that attachment hormone. Yeah. I feel attacked. Damn you, hormones. <laughs> Seriously? I'm going to tell you, there is something to say about being chaperoned. There's something to say about the chaperone. Yeah. The Victorians had, the, like, that's one of the few things they got it right. I agree. And we have some religions, you know, we have some very, you know, serious Christian religions in, you know, here in Western Europe and the United States where chaperoning is very important. I'll tell you, women, girls will latch on and attach like there is no tomorrow. And men don't release, don't get attached that easily, right? I always wonder though, okay, so this is like my theory. Okay, so as a person who I feel like I stopped experiencing that once I just knew what the game was. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like the hormone thing sometimes is overblown in favor of like the structural way in which women are gaslit to believe certain things about themselves and therefore feel that they have to attach. Yes. Yes. You know what I mean? I actually think more of it's structural. And I'm not denying that there's a hormonal aspect to it, but I just sometimes I feel like it's a little bit of everything, right? So let's say you have these little brown girls and, you know, nobody is telling them you're beautiful. You're a princess. Here's your dance classes. Here's your soccer classes. Here's your activities. You know, they're in foster care or they're in impoverished single parent households or heck, they're in middle class households where mom is working overtime, you know, or mom and dad is working overtime and a pimp is able to access them. You know, and they succumb to the seduction and then eventually it's too late. They get pulled in. They start doing some activities with the pimp and the shame, the woman, the female is flooded with shame and might not say anything or feel like they can't say anything. Uh, You start to feel trapped. Also, the use of technology. If you send nude pictures or if you perform sex act with the pimp, with the trafficker, and it gets recorded. Now you have that hanging over girls and girls do disappear and they do experience violence in that process. So, you know, that's where you have that trauma bond, you know, that happens. And then you're told in the quote unquote breaking process, some girls are quote unquote broken in and you experience so much degradation. Let's say Part of the breaking in process is to gang rape you, gang rape the girl, and urinate on the girl. Okay, that's very powerful. You are broken and then reconstructed, rebuilt, almost into a different person. And also when you see and hear, oh, no one protects black girls, no one protects us. Oh my goodness, you know, oh, the system is so mean to black girls. Oh my goodness, we don't get proper health care. We die in childbirth, blah, 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 blah. It sends a message. No one is coming to help you. No one is coming to save you. So you could just forget about it because you're not worth it. No one's coming to look for you. You take that and you take, hey, I'm the only one that's here to take that cares about you. And then you add a level of violence and torture that's indescribable. Well, it completely breaks you. Okay. And then that's the only thing that you've done from the age of 14 to possibly being recovered, maybe. Let me tell you how serious it is. We have girls here that, you know, were trafficked out of foster care or trafficked out of their families, and they've been in and out of jail, in and out of prison with this pimp, with that pimp, et cetera. And now they're homeless. Okay. They're homeless. We have a very serious homelessness issue. Pimps come up. They'll have a man waiting. Take the girl off the street, a woman, she could be in her 40s, she could be in her 30s, she could be younger too, but the younger girl they're going to hold on to. But take the older girl that they've been trafficking for years or pimping out for years and years and years, sell her to the man and then bring her back to her homeless spot. And there's no law enforcement, no police intervention, no nothing. So when you have been in horrendous situations and no one has come to rescue you. And in fact, people are laughing and participating in your torture and abuse. You become a different person. 
You don't even conceive or hope anymore to be rescued. And you're gaslit that whoever is rescuing you is the evil white man, the evil supremacist. (laughs) And they're literally taking you in to prison, unfortunately, into jail or some type of shelter or something like that to save you. I know we love to talk about how the police doesn't do this and the police is terrible and the police participate in trafficking girls. Okay, we're aware of these things, but it's not like no girl ever gets rescued. There are a lot of women that get pulled out of it. So we can't go to the other extreme either. But if the girl is groomed like that, she might even look at her rescuer as a bad person because of their race. So you have a racial, you have black girls who are erased for looking at their girlhood, their womanhood, being a female and race gets pressed on them in a very powerful way. They're racialized and their sex is erased. We had a very similar conversation on our other podcast, uh, Female Political Strategy, with another researcher. She was an independent researcher who had done a lot of research into a homicide of Black women and girls and said very similar things, is that a lot of the women who end up being killed by their intimate partners, you know, a lot of it is out of a sense of not wanting to go to the police, not wanting to talk to law enforcement, not not wanting to admit to people what's going on with them because of fear of police retaliation. And it's a tough thing because, you know, while I certainly think a lot of the aspects of Black Lives Matter are very valid, like I definitely don't think the police should be judged during execution or on the street. What makes it really difficult is like poor policing just isn't a matter of gun violence. Like poor policing is when you antagonize communities to the point where nobody trusts them. Right. And it only hurts. It hurts, I think, women and girls the most. Right. Because they're relying on the idea that there's going to be some kind of code within their community to protect them. And that's not often the case. Like what protects women and girls even now is state law enforcement, meaning like the laws that come from the cities and states that are put on the books that law enforcement has to follow versus like some kind of street code, right? Which street codes can be broken all the time when it's convenient. Like the thing about the police is that at least they are in theory beholden to most of the laws. So it's including those laws around sex trafficking, et cetera. So trusting them to carry out the laws of the state in these types of instances is a much better bet. But then, you know, I can definitely see why a lot of women would get scared. I mean, even had someone as famous as in rich at this point as Megan Thee Stallion, who was a victim of domestic violence who was shot in her feet by Tory Lanez. And she even said, like, when the police came, you know, I didn't want them to know he had a gun. I didn't want anybody to know, you know, that I was hurt. So I lied. She said she stepped on glass and she admits that she lied. And it was completely and totally to protect Tory, who then later confessed to shooting her. But the backlash she got for that, she's now Megan the liar. They were comparing her to Jussie Smollett. Right. Because they don't understand the double bind. And Black women are under double patriarchy and the double bind. And so we sacrifice ourselves and the Black women in the community sacrifice themselves to protect one type of patriarchy for another. And the reality is statistics show that it's an exaggeration, even though we're all traumatized looking at videos where people are, you know, murdered on Think we all saw George Floyd. We watch these, you know, murder. We watch these dash cam videos that show uh, murders being played out and it traumatizes us. But the reality is we are rescued more by police than we are harmed by police. I'm talking about black women, you know, especially in domestic violence situations. But we don't talk about what law enforcement do that's good. We only talk about what they do that hurts us. And we are partially controlled by these horrendous police law enforcement videos that come out. If law enforcement did not do anything for the Black community, we'd have no girls recovered. We'd have even worse domestic violence, violent rates. If law enforcement said, forget it. We're not coming back in, which they are on their way to doing. (laughs) They're like, I'm not going to lose my career. I'm not going to have anybody say that I did something to this man. So 
there's a delay in response to now answering DV calls. Okay. Who's, who pays that price? Defund the police. Defund the police. Who pays the price? Women. Women and children pay the price by now having a delay in, in, in all of this. Without the police, I'm not saying that they are the best, the best, the best, but without them, the thin blue line is gone and it would just be complete chaos in our communities. It would just be open season. It almost is open season with the crime rates in some of these communities and the devaluing of the black woman, the collective force that's happening by us not standing as a sex class and allowing ourselves to just be racialized. It's deadly. It's really scary. And there's not like a simple answer, right? It's very, very difficult to, how would you even tell them to say, how would you even explain to someone, especially if they've been in foster care their whole life and they have effectively been abandoned? I mean, or the people in their life have been brutal to them in some way. Explain to them that you have enough value such that you should not let any old man. <laughs> what did you call him? Any old raggedy piece of man? <laughs> any old raggedy piece of man you go don't release all these hormones for. But mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, and then on top of it, like, I mean, this is like the million dollar question. And because I actually don't think it's even just, I mean, it's not just African-Americans, but it's been primarily African-Americans. I think just the history of how the police force even got started in some places. But there is a inherent level of community distrust. And that is true for Native Americans. That is true for Black Americans and true, and also true for a lot of Latino communities. So it's like, I think you're completely right in that it more often serves men's interests because those guys are not going to police themselves, especially if they're already criminals. But like, let's just assume they are the man of the best of, uh, they're not criminals, like they're not gangsters. Maybe they're just working class guys. Men still prioritize themselves at our expense all of the time, just by default. Absolutely. And this is why I've been a little bit side-eyeing a lot of the like uh, community policing advocates because I'm like, I don't know that I want half these idiots being... Oh, no, honey. They got to go. It's not that I think the police are great, but a lot of these other guys are just as bad. Like <laughs> They are. That's what I mean by double patriarchy. I don't know why we think today that it's going to be any different than it has been from ancient times, from Africa. It's not going to be any different. Men, I don't care how high they are in the power, I don't care in the hierarchy of man, in the hierarchy of patriarchy, whoever's at the top, whoever's at the bottom, it doesn't matter. The woman is expected to be at the bottom. The woman is expected under the thumb of men. So it doesn't matter. Just because some of these so-called community activists, community organizers, I'm sorry, half of them are pimps or quote unquote, retired pimps. They'll brag about it. (laughs) A lot of men I've noticed, like they don't see sex trafficking as a crime. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. If you describe sex trafficking to a lot of men, they don't see it as sex trafficking. And you're seeing that a lot with the Andrew Tate supporters right now. And I want to talk about this in particular, actually, kind of in relation to him. He's an interesting character in that he just basically says, he says exactly what he's doing, right? He doesn't try to obscure any of his intentions or his motives. And he talks very explicitly about using the lover boy method is what a lot of people call the Romeo pimp. And there's so many women and girls who become victims because like I said, this guy comes and tells them you have value or they have like a bottom bitch woman that comes and grooms that girl and says like, oh, you can make money like me, etc. And I know just offhand, there's been a number of porn stars who've come out and talked about that, like where a lot of them were introduced to the sex trade by men they thought were boyfriends. And so that's Andrew Tate. That was his first woman he got to be cam girl from was a girlfriend. So what's your take on the lover boy method? But men don't see that as sex trafficking. Well, we women, you know, it's not like we have the power to put you know, what is a girl? What is a woman? True history of women and how women lost their power and how they're oppressed over time, you know, over thousands of years. They don't learn it. And even the adult women around girls don't learn about their feminine power, their womanhood, their sex power, all of that. So girls are just vulnerable. They're vulnerable to this type of indoctrination and this Romeo type of pimping. And then you have a lot of adult women who, let's say they're married, they don't realize 
and they're in charge of child welfare, in charge of foster care, in charge of schools. They just do not understand how predatory our world is and has become. The proliferation of pornography, the proliferation of talking about destitution, prostitution, like it's a choice and like it's a great thing. It's a great way to supplement your income, blah, blah, blah. We don't realize it. We don't realize that girls walk into a classroom and half the boys have already watched a gang rape pornography. It's just a click away on the phone. So, you know, so girls are very vulnerable. You have all, your body is just on fire. You're young and young and virile and strong. And some guy says, you know, you're beautiful and starts grooming you and starts treating you in a way that, hey, TV says a man is supposed to treat you or the women around you says how the man is supposed to treat you. We don't realize that men are goal-oriented. Nothing is casual. There's nothing casual. Everything is goal-oriented. Your wife material, your uh, sex slave material, your friend material, your hit it and quit it material, your my casual every once in a while material. Men are goal-oriented with how they see women. They don't change the categorization of where that girl belongs. And we don't realize that we have to take time to see it, (laughs) you know, to recognize patterns or to make decisions before your heart flips over to that man. I hope I answered your question. (laughs) I mean, when I'm listening to you describe it, I'm like, yeah, I don't think it's not just the most vulnerable girls. It's really all of us. That's the thing. And just the stakes are so much higher for the girls who come from nothing, the girls who come from abuse, you know, it, And that's why I think for us, just as FDS in general, you know, we've been so ruthless about talking about like these power strategies, these anti-patriarchal power strategies, how to recognize the game and understand when it's being run on you. And it's funny because I think, and guess because you've been part of the university system, some of this stuff comes from academics and it seems like it's like well-researched and it seems like, oh, uh, this makes a lot of sense. And they try to push a narrative, but then you look at the practicalities of it and what it actually means for people in their everyday life and not just like on a theoretical level. And then you realize like, oh, this is just an ideology that benefits men. Are you talking about pushing sex work? Sex work as from an academic setting. And we, we roasted a guy who basically spent his entire academic career studying underage, trying to justify and study like pornography of underage boys. So it's like, it's really... And this is not, he didn't go to like a small unknown university. Was it University of Manchester, Savannah? Do you remember? Yeah, it was Manchester. Yeah, that creepy. Yeah. That creepy guy. So, you know, they're constantly pushing these narratives. And then you have the media, right? So then you have media is owned by a lot of extremely rich, old, disgusting men who are very, I mean, even the Me Too movement, when it started to come out, all of the men who were involved in sex trafficking, who were involved in blackballing women, who were involved in rape from your Harvey Weinstein to the guy who was, uh, what was his name from CBS? I'm, I'm losing, uh, Les Moonves, you know, a bunch of the guys at NBC, like a lot of very powerful men at the top of a lot of these institutions pushing narratives forward saying like, oh, you'll be like this. You want to be treated like this as a woman. And then there's a certain amount of women who adopt that because they adopt it in good faith. I don't think they're all like, quote, stupid or anything. I just think that they have like a more effort in good faith in humanity, right? Well, they do. A lot of these women that support this, they grew up respected by their grandfather, father, brother, husband. They have no idea the depths of deprivation that men are totally comfortable in pushing other women in. Like I said earlier, men have categories for women. And a lot of women really abuse their power when they articulate something that they don't fully understand, simply because maybe it's not in their worldview. And so there's an insensitivity to how poor women can be recategorized or a woman of a different ethnicity can be categorized and and all of that, you know. It's very important. You watch The Handmaid's Tale? Yes, I've watched that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Probably the most important character is Serena Joy. I talk about her a lot. Serena Joy is very important because she really thought she was doing something. She really and seriously thought she was going to be part of changing the world, doing something, da-da-da. And next thing you know, she was walking around talking about blessed is the fruit. She had no idea that 
the cows were going to come home and that she was going to be tied up in her house and, you know, pressed down. So you have women that, you know, they participate and not realize that they're helping men to institutionalize that which men want. So they're pushing for younger girls, pushing for younger boys, and to be able to be justified in doing it. You know, we have a powerful pimp lobby that want to bring, you know, they want to legalize prostitution. They're ready to jump into the United States because it's wide open in the United States for decriminalization and legalization. I think UK, are you under a decriminalization model? I'm not too sure, to be honest. I think that sex work is generally legal here. I want to like caveat that possibly, but um, you just can't be under the control of a pimp, I think. Okay. And so there is a legal distinction between decriminalization and legalization. So if it was legalized, child, you'd have brothels all over the... Well, you do have that in the UK and we have that informally here in the United States, but you're talking about the push to legalize the exploitation of young girls and young boys. That's all it is. If it's legal, hey, I don't have to feel guilty about it. If she smiles at the end of a porn video, I don't have to feel guilty about what I just watched happen to her. If she says she chose it and it's my body, my choice, hey, I don't have to feel guilty. You know, child marriage, hey, it's legal. It's it's a part of our religion. It's religious freedom, you know. So there's always a way to excuse it. But unfortunately, then there are women that help support it and help go along with it. So I, I look at both the patriarchal system, I look at the male oppression, but I also look at the women that help hold it up. A lot of it has to do with, I actually heard a good discussion about this on Barry Weiss's show, about the change of where feminism came from, or when feminism became academic instead of like a grassroots bottom-up movement, it fundamentally changed a lot of the goals and objectives. It became like a trendy thing to be a part of, and a something that a lot of girls would do is more more immediate advocacy or like internalizing things that were basically like personal identity issues rather than like understanding the class struggle of women's rights. I feel like it's been really tough to sit back and watch. And like, we've been critical of some of the aspects of it because of both like the over-focus on uh, female empowerment through sexualization, right? A lot of them being like, I'm getting naked for myself, which, okay, you might be, but it just seemed like a lot of them, it was like, you know, we kind of made fun of some of the Jezebel writers because of that, where so much of their feminism was about like, they wanted to be sexualized by like the girls that were more attractive, right? So like a lot of the things that they would write would be like having hookups with random guys and stuff like that, because that made them feel desired and therefore powerful. And they didn't do like the class struggle. They thought like me having sex with the men I want to have sex with the men having sex with me is empowerment, or that's going to push the needle forward. That's going to bring women's rights. And you're seeing some of that with also gender ideology, which is like no small discussion. Thinking like if you just change your pronouns or adjust the way that you present yourself, that like a lot of the issues that affect women are somehow going to pass you by. Or, you know, there's just over-focus on, and I think it's because it's becoming from like (laughs) girls in the university system you know, we don't have a, a sense of class solidarity. Like if you're in the university system, I'm not saying that everybody comes from privilege by any means, but it's so much more of an, an individual identity issue rather than a class struggle. Right. Turning it into rugged individualism. It's just me, 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 and my experience. You have to understand, sometimes Black women get caught up in a lot of stuff that we don't, we don't understand the forces. Now, you have these in the university system. Well, talk about gender ideology. You had men that penetrated women's studies, men that came in right as the women's movement was just kicking and going. And we haven't even passed the ERA because women thought, oh, okay, well, some women thought, well, we've arrived. Okay. Now you have these young women coming up in these religious, very religious environments, very religious spaces. And you have this breaking away from conservatism. You have part of white culture breaking away. This is the liberal. This is where the liberals come from. I want my freedom from religion. Don't make me, you know, be a Protestant. Don't make me do this. I'm free. 
I can sleep with whoever I want. That's a symbol of my freedom. I can move in with my boyfriend. That's a symbol of my freedom. Well, that is a, you know, a middle to upper middle class, European American cultural thing that happened. Black women had already been exploited sexually like there is no tomorrow during chattel slavery. And and even through, uh, a lot of women had to resort to destitution, prostitution, along with sharecropping, along with being a childcare worker, along with being a maid and things like that. Just really a struggle. But then you have this group of women that entered the academic system and they could intellectualize their sexual freedom. And who did they get? They moved in with their boyfriend who also came from privileged backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera, maybe. So here we are looking at this and say, oh, oh, I'm free. I'm free as sexual. Oh, sex work is work. Not realizing our sex class that we're already, not all of us, but many of us already at the bottom, struggling economically, consequences of all free love and all of that. Babies without their daddies, babies without interested fathers and et cetera, et cetera. So we got to be careful when we get caught up in these movements. So you had gender ideology crept in to these university systems very early. You had men that penetrated women's studies. The ink wasn't even dry on women's studies programs before they got switched over to gender studies. That was the first step of that Trojan horse that came in to take over and dominate women as a sex class. A new ruling patriarchy was budding up and we weren't even aware of it. See, now black women ends up getting dragged through all of these ideological battles that occur between the left and the right. And we get dragged in there. We actually think we're a part of it and we suffer the consequences because we end up riding for other people, fighting for these men, fighting for this situation that has nothing to do with us. I've often made the comment, I mean, especially when it comes to, because a lot of people have used, I think, Black trans women as the litmus test of like what is trans equality and trans rights because Black trans women are, I think, the demographic that is most murdered and most at risk of violence from the trans community. But I keep making the comment like 90% of that is because they're Black and poor, right? So if let's say all the gender neutral bathrooms happen you change all the sports so that like trans women uh, compete directly against <laughs> women. How does that affect black trans women at all? You know what I mean? Like one of the things I've noticed with that is that they've kind of lumped this racial struggle again, once again, <laughs> against the gender struggle. And I'm like, even if you genuinely believe that black trans women are the most vulnerable group in the black community and they need extra protection, none of the things that a lot of these like large trans advocacy groups are doing are going to affect them at all because 90% of their problem is they are black and poor in high crime areas. And like they are murdered because a lot of black people are murdered in those areas. Black men, black women, black girls, black boys. Like, so when they're saying it, it's like they're, they're losing a lot of black women who are very, very upset about the violence in the community. Yeah. as like the (laughs) the struggle mule (laughs) to to push certain things. (laughs) As usual, it's force teaming. It's a technique that's used. Consultants are hired all the time to teach this to parties on the left, the left-leaning media, the Democratic Party, all on the left. Use social injustice and racial animus to attach yourself to. So then that way you can take on a minority status. Okay. So you're looking at this person with blonde hair, blue eyes, and you're like, oh, okay, you're a minority. Okay. It's just shocking. So force teaming takes all the civil rights language, social injustice, things that happen to black women, et cetera, et cetera. And you press it on to this group, to press it on to this new system that's in place, this new queer patriarchy or this new system in place for profit taking all the different programs, all the different education programs, all the funding, all the dominance, the silencing of the media, the power. We're seeing a new power structure come in and you pop black people in front of it and they become the shield. We become the shield. Okay. Most black relationships where a trans person is a domestic violence situation. Well, what's the DV rate for black women? We know it's five a day. 
So the individuals that are being murdered, the vast majority in the United States, not Brazil, but in the United States is DV. And then crimes in the street, uh, street prostitution and things like that. The vast majority are DV cases. You kill your partner, your partner kill you either way. But you're able, you have the gender industry that's able to take black people like we're a bucket of melanin, scoop out some cream and rub it on. And then you take on an oppressed status and you're able to bring in anything that you want. The same with CRT, critical race theory. It's the same thing. The word race triggers our emotions. We think that these evil people don't want to teach black history, blah, blah, blah. And so we're gassed up and we're juiced up and we end up doing the battles on the front line for people that could care less about us. We're on the front lines. Yeah, CRT, you're not doing this. Oh my God, black trans murder. Da, da, da. Meanwhile, it's other agendas happening. There's money moving for education programs. People are making money writing books. People are making money bringing in education curriculum that nobody wants. No ethnicity, no rape. Nobody wants it because it's so you know, sexually graphic. You know, the whole thing, the whole nine. And we're the front, we're the shields. All the DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion staff, they're all African-American. You have anything that, now you watch when sex work prostitution starts heating up in the United States, because it's coming, because the pimp lobbyists, they have their checkbooks out and they're writing checks. I believe it, because we just did an episode a few months back about a politician in Philadelphia who was trying to push like the right to sex movement. And the idea that like, <laughs> it's even being pushed by NGOs like Amnesty and the UN that sex is a human right. And we also, you know, Ron and I like roasted these disability rights activists in the UK who were trying to make access to sex a right for disabled people, i.e. disabled men. And they want the state to pay for it, which is incel rhetoric where, you know, how incels, they want the state to give them a girlfriend. That's where we're heading. Okay. Now it's a repeat of the past because remember in Germany, Germany had for many years where they gave little boys and possibly little girls to uh, registered sex offenders. I'll send you that link. That was published in the New York Times and the New Yorker. Absolutely. I think I heard about that. Wasn't it some kind of like therapy for the sex offenders to like just keep them from offending? Oh, yes. They gave them little boys. They were the foster parent. And this was legal. And this is a Western European nation that's at the top of the food chain in the EU. This is a nation that's a member of the European Union. And this is what they did to children. And we are going right back to it, right back to it. If women allow themselves to be co- Not on my fucking watch. That's right. That's right. No, I'm saying no. that my whole chest right now. <laughs> I released the episode today. <laughs> That's what's happening. No, I love that. I love that. I was like, wow, yeah. get it, bro. You know, <laughs> sorry. I just cannot believe that audacity. I'm like, so I think what if that were to happen in the U.S., it would be because the tech bros kick off all the radical feminists who kick off all the women who dissent, which is what's happening. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. And that's why we all have to stick together. I don't care if it's Palsy. I don't care if it's New Zealand, the United States, Canada, the West, at the very highest level, the West is being conquered. Okay. So we have a major shift. This is why black women, we got to get out of this. We got, we have to like wake up and look forward. Okay. Looking back. Yeah, we know, but we have to start paying attention to all the ways that we're radicalized to believe false data and pulled away from true data, from true information. We have to be careful. We're just constantly used as the front shield to push agendas. You wait till prostitution comes. What's it going to be? They're going to say, they're going to bring a black woman on and she's going to go, Oh my God, I need to be able to make money. They're going to bring a black transgender up. You're transphobic because you're trying to stop me from making that. And they're going to bring a soft, gentle, academic looking white woman that'll come up and say, sex work is great. That's the trio. Those are the three that end up arguing. 
They literally did that in New York, if I'm not mistaken. If I'm, like, if I'm not mistaken, there were two like uh, legalization of sex bills that were in New York, and they had one was sponsored by a black trans woman, and then the other one was like us. I don't remember one of the more prominent liberal feminists. So that's right. This is a push of the pimp lobbyists. Okay, prostitution is a real estate business. Prostitution is a tourist business. Prostitution is a business that can add to a state or a nation's GDP, gross domestic product. And what is happening is women are being commodified, broken apart into different pieces, and each piece has a price tag on her. And that's what's being pushed. We're in a new economy where technology is going to absorb more and more jobs. Women always pay the price in shifting economies and always pay the price in warfare, shifting economies and warfare. And right now we're shifting economies and we're experiencing a shift in leadership from Anglo-Saxon patriarchy to queer patriarchy, who are the foot soldiers of global, globalist patriarchy. So as black women, we can't get caught up in this. I mean, when I say we can't get, we can't get caught up in, oh my God, you know, These people belong in our bathrooms. These people belong in our... We have to see the game. We have to see that we are experiencing a gorilla pimp correction. We're going to humiliate you. We're going to throw... We're going to threaten your life. We're going to put a knife to your throat. We're going to take over your sports. We're going to take over your bathroom. You're going to learn your place. Oh, and by the way, Anglo-Saxon, we're doing this and you can't do anything about it. We're changing your laws. You're the lawmaker. You've been the lawmaker since the 1400s. You're the one that are the descendants of Vikings. And this is what we're doing to you. We're putting you in your place. We're taking over your work. You can't do anything about it. You separated men and women. And guess what? We're going to dismantle that. So you are being conquered. And we're showing you that you are being conquered through the abuse of the women that are under your, you know, uh, leadership. That's what's happening. You got pimp lobbyists putting their money through. You have pedophiles and child rapists. Tomorrow, if I had a million dollars, I could hire a woman to have a baby and take that baby and do whatever. Buy the egg, buy the woman's womb, and do whatever it it is I want with that child. Okay? Unregulated. You know, so everything is happening, biotech and biopharma. The woman's body is just being harvested, harvested, harvested. And they don't even put the word woman in any of the research articles from life sciences, biotech, biopharma, the placenta. The, oh, my God. They, the cervix have a birthing person. How about black birthing body? And how are black women okay with that? Oh, my God. I mean, it definitely makes it sound like cattle to be farmed and used like a product and commodity. And like and if everything you're saying is correct, that would be the first step in doing it right. Get women used to seeing themselves as exploitable body parts. It's the craziest thing to me. You see some of these liberal men, you see some of these men on the left. Listen, honey, because what you're saying, when you call a woman a cervix ever, after you came out of a woman, after she nurtured your behind in her womb and pushed you out of her vagina, now you're going to talk about cervix haver. That means you are telling your daughter to lower her eyes and submit to whatever it is these men want to do. You are saying, gentlemen, come on in. You may have my daughter. That's what you're saying. Okay, so we've been doing a series called The Tactics of Male Power. And we've been talking about this because like for people to recognize that when the narrative shifts, because it's easy to demonize like one side or the other, but all men are equally invested in exploiting women and they will find different ways and different tools to do it. You know, growing up, the microphone and the spotlight was on conservatism. I grew up like very evangelical and rightfully so, right? Like I think there was so much, there was so much oppressive nonsense there when it came to women. And now you're seeing sort of a shift where a lot of women are being kind of, like you said, indoctrinated to like a double patriarchy or a new patriarchy, not realizing. Well, black women, black women are under double patriarchy. Yeah. So, but like indoctrinated to like another sort of patriarchy or like an assertion of male power at our expense and not realizing it. Like 
It's happening slowly and then suddenly very quickly. And the women who do realize it are suddenly being completely locked out of, like you said, news media or tech. And it's like the big they is the question mark, right? It seems like it came from academia. And now there's probably a lot of moneyed interest behind it, not just on like a personal scale or even like a political scale, like on an industrial medical scale. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. No, the gender surgeries and and that whole industry is $5 trillion industry with expected growth over time because now you have lifetime patients. So that's $5 trillion, honey. And there's not even a ton of evidence it works. That's the saddest part about it. No, it's business. And this is where you see these people screaming at the top of their lungs because a woman wants to say, let women speak. (laughs) People are losing their minds. It's like, hello, we have freedom of speech. Let's let them speak. What's the issue? But you're messing with people's money. So now you have all these agents out in the street. You have radicalized people, like naturally radicalized people in this cult. And then you have paid agents that are helping to fuel you know, the narrative, see? And that's why I say, when I talk about patriarchy, when I talk about men, and when I talk about anything, now I realize, you know, over the last, you know, probably since 2015, 2016, to be clear about who you're talking about. When I say double patriarchy, Black women have been under double patriarchy since the year 1000, since the year 1400 when the European man and African man formed a business relationship and started trafficking us, okay? That's, that's double patriarchy. It's a black woman experience. And brown women experience it too. They're inside the rule of their men and the patriarchy that dominates their men. Can we talk a little bit more about the international? Because I know you said you've worked with... So actually, list the countries of women that you've worked with um, when it comes to sex trafficking. I worked with the leadership so governors, oh, gotcha. Okay, and CBO directors of community-based organizations, also the juvenile justice counterpart, child welfare leadership counterpart, and foster care counterpart to us in the United States. So I would say Romania and Bosnia, but at the time now it's Bosnia Herzegovina, but before it was just Bosnia, Russia. Poland, Georgia, not Georgia, United States, but Georgia and Eastern Europe, Malawi, India, Philippines, Chile. Those are the nations that I remember working with. Wow. So what do you think is, this is maybe a a really broad question, but like, what do you think the similarities are between these countries versus like the disparate differences between sex trafficking in these different countries? Like, what do you think is like unique to, let's say, Eastern Europe versus Malawi versus the Philippines? Well, it's actually, you know, very much the same. You know, people want to meet the demand that men have to buy women. Okay, so Eastern Europe opened up when Ronald Reagan, then Ronald Reagan, and, you know, they tore down the wall, so to speak, between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. And they had an economic shift. I see. So I think you said the economic shift is often the precursor to... Remember, I said economic shift and warfare. Those two things, the woman... So now everybody's like, oh my God, you know, boy, Ronald Reagan brought freedom to the East, you know, to the East and not Eastern Europe is, you know, they broke down the wall. They're not living behind that wall. Well, what happened? The girls were trafficked, Ukrainian girls, half a million girls, 100,000 to half a million girls from the Ukraine alone. Romania, Nordic Model now published an article where a woman was interviewed, you know, in the article, she wrote the article, she said, we're running out of childbearing age girls in Romania. And then you got Tate over there trying to do his thing. It's just disgusting. You have Russian women trafficked, Latvian. Albanian, you have women from all over Eastern Europe, white slavery, I guess you can call it, or the Natasha trade, you know, so it's pretty significant, pretty significant. These women are girls and women, Poland, these girls and women are shipped all over the place. And they're the ones that fill the brothels in Western Europe. It's not like, you know, a brothel in Belgium is filled with Belgium women. 
It's not like brothels in Austria are filled with Austrian women. No, it's a class issue and the othering issue. And those women are the ones that are brought in. They're poor. Their nation, their nations have, have a different type of level of poverty than Western Europe. They don't have a social service, you know, a social service type of a culture, a, a safety net type of a thing that is the same in Western Europe. So they come over. And you have Asian girls. They're high in demand. Philippines, Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia. You have American and Canadian and German, other European men that go to Asia and drive that economy. You have military men that drive that economy. As you can see, passport bros trying to get in on that too. Okay, so <laughs> let me park really quick with the passport bros. They've been taking a lot of L's on social media lately because it turns out everybody can see that they're broken, dusty at these countries as well. International symbol of broken, dusty has now become passport bros. I mean, here is what I'm talking about when it comes to power. Here are these men that say, we're oppressed. We're oppressed. We're oppressed. We're oppressed. But they know how to take American money and be that American going to these other countries and taking advantage of young girls and women. Those women are trafficked. Those women are in some type of debt bondage prostitution. So that's a whole nother level right there. It's not like they're like, ooh, I'm free and easy and running around. Do you think these women want to sleep with these men? No, no woman wants to be with three, four, five, 10, 20 men a day. No woman wants this. So the fantasy and the talk about that, that's a load of crap. And do you think these women want these passport bros? Like, at least you could look like you took a shower for this YouTube that you're putting up here or this TikTok that you're putting up here. Good Lord. See, so you hear that psychology. I'm oppressed, but I can oppress. I'm oppressed, but I am part of the oppressor class. That's powerful psychology right there. It's very powerful. Black women have to watch out for that. I have to listen for that, for that orientation. So I think we're close to wrapping. So I want to almost end on something that's not nearly as depressing as everything we talked about. <laughs> I, I mean, it's such a globally vast problem. It's sad how effective it's been. But on the other hand, you do see a lot of women who are starting to, even on the ground level, starting to raise awareness and become more aware. Like, you know, what is our hope for the future? Like, have you seen anything that's been effective? And I think you've talked about your own community organizing that has been effective to start to push back against some of these interests? You know, working with women and fighting back against men being put in women's prisons, sports, all of these things, the language, the colonization of our language, the colonization of our bodies and getting together. You know, we're Japanese, European-American, African-American, Latin American, every nationality of woman and along with women of different ideology. So Democrat, Republican, independent, homeless Democrats, <laughs> homeless Republicans, all of us coming together. And it's like, I mean, it's beautiful. I'm like, wow, I'm in a room with Republican women. I'm in the room with Asian women. I'm in the room with, you know, Democrat. I'm in the room with women who are getting in touch with their sex class. And that is something, it feels good. And we need to multiply it by like a thousand, by like tomorrow. <laughs> that is a good thing. Coming together. Race, you know, we're going to have to unracialize ourselves a little so that we can see clearer and we could see with some 2020 vision about what's happening to us as a sex class. And it's beautiful when you can come together. Look at us talking. We're talking to each other. We met each other and we're talking to each other because what's happening to women as a sex class is waking up women that are in touch with their womanhood, that are in touch. And so we're coming together. That's what's beautiful to me. Yeah, I love it. And on that note, that's our show. Thank you, Dr. Beeling. This was a very enlightening discussion. I feel like we covered a lot of ground. Oh. My God. Yes, absolutely. Love you, Savannah. Love you, Ro. Thank you. 
If you would like to hear bonus content, check us out on patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy. You can submit a roasted scrote. I think we have to bring back roasted scrotes sometime soon. So submit a roasted scrote via our Patreon. Also follow us on Twitter at femdatstrat or visit our website to talk about this episode and more on the forum on thefemaledatingstrategy.com. Also follow us on Instagram at underscore the female dating strategy. Thanks for listening, queens. And for all you raggedy men out there, our hormones are finally waking up. Die mad. See y'all next week. Bye, guys. (laughs) Bye.